Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome. Welcome again to Staging Sound. And I'm delighted to have uh, Anna Ricke and Julia Schröder today here as my guests. Uh, who both have done fascinating research, particularly on uh, sounds and noises of, uh, and also particularly historical uh, research into into the development of sound effects and music in in various uh, theatrical cultures of the past. And I'm really excited to hear more about that. Anna, to start with, uh, is a is a trained music theatre and musicologist, so music theatre studies in Bayreuth and musicology in Cologne. Uh, you've 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 done your your BA and MA there. You've then continued with a with a PhD in Cologne on someone who I have to confess I didn't know, but she sounds like a fascinating character. She's called Smaragda Egerberg. That's a, a mouthful as well. Um, and with the lovely subtitle Bohemian Musician Sister. Sounds like a fascinating uh, biography and cultural history of, of, of a particular time and a particular age. And then for about four years now, you've been working in uh, Detmold Paderborn together with Professor Antje Tumat uh, as her assistant. And one of the things you're doing, which I'm very excited about, is you're editing uh, the Handbuch für Schauspielmusik, Handbook for Theatre Music, which is going to come out, I think, next year. I hope, we hope <laughs> or, so. <laughs> yeah, we hope that it's going to be next year. But that's going to be a landmark in 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 theater music history, uh, particularly for Germany. I think it's going to be a really uh, great collection of of work. Um, Julia has also a doctorate in musicology. She's also a musicologist. Uh, she's got a, a variety of interests, particularly into contemporary art music, 20th century music, sound art, graphic notations, uh, but also on the relationships of music and dance. You've you've worked on uh, Cage and Cunningham for a while, uh, as I remember. You've also looked into questions of sound design in theatre and sound studies. You've published a book on uh, or edited a book uh, on sound design with uh, Robert Wilson. And uh, you've also been working at the UDK, uh, at the, the course on sound studies. Is that, that right? Yeah. <laughs> That's correct. That's Thank correct. you for having us. Oh, you're very welcome. You've also, this is also fascinating because you've also worked on uh, a project called the, On the Position of Music Listeners. So I think it's really important because we tend to, when we talk about sound we tend to talk, talk about sound production you know techniques technologies uh intentions um uh all manner of things so we, we look at it from a production uh, point of view and uh and looking at really from a from an experiential point of view from from the position of the listener as you've called it uh is is a, is a great um shift in perspective that is that is really uh important and yeah. this provides actually this provides a, a perfect uh, intro to Anna's research because uh, <laughs> it's all about reception perception, right? <laughs> yeah. First of all, thank you very much for that introduction and for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here today. Uh, so in my project, I I research music and sound in London Gothic plays around 1800, and my project basically revolves around well, perhaps not the but one of the origins of horror music and sound. So um, when we today watch a horror movie or we play a horror video game, we are inevitably confronted with typical types of, of horror music, like creepy sounds, um, dissonant or atonal music, religious music. Think of the, the organ as an instrument. 
and also music that is unexpected in the particular context, for example, child music or a musical box, just, just to name a few. However, um, horror music and sound were not only used in sound films, but were part of theater practices that go back much earlier. Um, and one early genre that is connected to horror is that of Gothic plays. That means Gothic operas, melodramas, and spoken plays that all contain, well, some kind of music. And my hypothesis is that music and sound were increasingly used in these plays to evoke gloom and terror, and that as early as in the 18th century. And so the just to give a little bit of context, the development and popularity of these Gothic plays on stage is clearly linked to the popularity of the Gothic novel that emerged in the 1760s, with, uh, starting with Horace Walpole's novel The Castle of Otranto, that is well, generally regarded as the first Gothic novel. And following this example, then a lot of subsequent Gothic novels dealt with similar stories about, for example, dark tyrants in their gloomy castles and supernatural events in a medieval setting of, of, of superstition and barbarian customs that the term Gothic is also referring to. And of course, these motives and, and plots increasingly found their way on the stage. So a considerable amount of plays in the 1770s and 1780s already show a lot of Gothic features. But then in the 1790s, they really proliferated on the stages. And that makes them an ideal subject for study, um, especially because there are also several well, general changes in, in music and sound in this time. For example, a new, new importance and role of sounds and also the emergence of melodrama and melodramatic music. And so when we look at an early horror genre like Gothic plays, we can find a lot more out about these early approaches to find a sounding equivalent uh, for horror on the stage. Um, but before, before we get into detail, I really want to add, you, you already said it, I'm not... Uh, very far in my project yet. So officially I'm starting in autumn and um, I haven't officially started yet. <laughs> so I brought a few uh, examples today, but I'm not sure how representative they really are. So mm. uh, I've just looked in about, I don't know, 10, maybe 15% of the place that I'm going to look into it will be about 120 places in the end, I think. I can talk about a few hints that I found about developments that could be there, <laughs> but I can't prove anything yet. But but that's great uh, because it means that we can have this conversation again in three years or so when the project yeah. is finished. And, <laughs> and I'm sure the podcast will be running still. So, I mean, <laughs> fingers crossed. No, but that's great. It's it's also, I think it's really, um, uh, in, in terms of what this podcast does, you know, we've we've sometimes really looked back at papers that we've written 10, 15 years ago as a kind of way of also tracing the distance we've traveled to some of the concepts we've used in the past. We did that early on. I remember a session with Adrian and Peter, where we where we really sort of looked at old research, you know, that we've yeah. that we had done and how how things had changed and terms had changed and our, our perception of things had changed. But it's also great to look into perspective research and sort of, you know, uh, yes, of course, you're working with hypotheses at this point. You've, you've worked with sort of uh, uh, an inkling that you've got, you know, of course, you've done some research uh, to to attract funding. But but uh, as you say, to really go into the into the breadth of the material will be will be a next step. And but it's fascinating to then 
see how what you what, what you think at the moment develops so that's a that's a great uh, thing I'll, I'll i'll jump to yulia first so that maybe we can get a sort of ping pong going uh, between yeah. the two projects because i think there there are lots of relations but of course there's plenty to come back to uh with what you said anna about uh this notion of of um gothic and horror and i'm fascinated by the fact that when we think of horror and music, yes, we think of horror films and to see that there's a prehistory and to see that it's a theatrical prehistory, uh, which predates, you know, um, electronic sound effects, et cetera, et cetera, is, is, is great. And we'll come back to that. Uh, Julia, you wanted to talk particularly about magic books or handbooks for magic tricks and to, to, to read them as a sort of a prompt almost for how people conceived of sensations of wonder, of magic, of horror. And I'm, Again, I'm fascinated that both of you have found inspiration in literary sources like novels or these handbooks that talk about sound, because that, of course, is is a, is a fascinating. Well, that's what we do here in the podcast as well. We talk about sound, which is one of the really difficult things in our field because sound is so tricky to to put into words. Julia, tell us a bit more about what what your interest is uh, in in this topic. Yes, I have been for the last. For years studying the noisemakers of uh, European theater, let's say. And partly it was really difficult to find sources. Yeah, there are a couple of handbooks. But, uh, for example, the wind machine, which we know as the instrument of uh, uh, inducing horror and suspense, etc., etc., it, it came about quite late as far as my sources reach. And uh, I would ask Anna, um, do you look at the um, actual um, dramas, the theater plays, or do you have additional materials of staging? Because there seems to be also a difference between uh, the libretti, for example, of music theater and um, the actual performance material. But let's go back uh, to what I found. Very early sources for these instruments and the the staging of sound effects were in books on uh, which revealed the effects of magical performances. Interestingly, and um, they have been in the same countries that also exchanged knowledge about theater technology, stage technology, that is in French, in English, in German. I haven't come about Italian sources yet, but that doesn't mean anything. So the interesting part is that uh, theater is at least in the sense of stage technology, magic and illusion, not uh, limited to theater stage, but extends to other forms of performances. And um, that's a very interesting part of the cultural history and the technology history of technology of theater stagings, where very similar if effects were, were looked at. So this suspense, tension, and exactly what you're looking at, Anna, is ex described in these um, magical illusion stagings. They were very popular at the time. Um, there is something 
around uh, 1780, uh, somebody uh, performed in Berlin, but also, I think, uh, in England and France. And um, it's described how all the lights were turned off. So light is, of course, an important <laughs> thing in this uh, suspense effect. There was a, a, um, a kind of atmosphere of the ghost appearing soon. And that was usually uh, with some kinds of sounds, of noises. They use specific instruments like the glass harmonica or, or something like this to um, evoke a certain atmosphere. And then there, with a Latana Magica or some other stage device, a ghost appeared or some dead person uh, uh, woke up or whatever. So, so very similar things. And if you look into this history and you go back a little bit, there's research, for example, by um, an English researcher of medieval and early modern period uh, drama, Butterworth, I think Michael Butterworth. And he also looked in those illusions and um, he found... Um, the theater studies persons um, amongst us know that um, the antecedents to theater were, of course, in the church uh, staging the passion plays, etc. So there are a lot of sources, very similar, very similar devices with um, um, thunder earthquake sounds, uh, stagings in the churches, in the passion plays. So it is. A history, I was surprised because I always thought it's limited to the modern theater building, but it is a history, a cultural history, which seems to um, leak over in other areas, especially in the noise and the sounds department. And I think, but we can talk about it, Anna, is that there are developing in the area that uh, in in the era that you're researching um a certain topoi that is the wind sound which are first in the literature and then are realized in in theater staging in other stagings and um i guess they are quite limited in number yeah, well, this is so fascinating. I'm really <laughs> totally overwhelmed by all these great things you were talking about. Um, but something that you you just said, perhaps I could pick up on that. Um, that uh, you said it is first appearing in literature and then it's brought on stage, and this is something that I um also observed, and I wasn't sure about it because I thought, okay, perhaps it's just like coincidence that I'm thinking about it. But uh, it's really amazing that you think practically the same thing. Um, for me, it was perhaps we could talk about that later when we speak about one of the examples, the captive, that uh, there in the novels, there's kind of, uh, especially of Anne Radcliffe, I will perhaps also say a few words about her later. Um, she creates in her novels, these soundscapes of horror. So it's actually always that the protagonist, which is usually a woman, is, for example, incarcerated by the villain, and she is sitting there in the dark, and everything she can perceive around her, she only hears. So she hears steps and is thinking about, oh, is the villain approaching? And then she hears a groan, and she thinks, okay, what what is that dreadful sound? And these like soundscapes of horror 
I, I have the feeling that this is something people try to experiment with on stage. And for example, the captive is, is an example for a, a, a failing experiment because it was apparently too much and the people were screaming, collapsing in, in the audience. Uh, a, a bit like today's, uh, there are sometimes horror films which are so um, horrible for the audience that people are fainting in, 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 the, in the audience. So this is very similar to what happened on stage with these experiments with horror effects. So it is really interesting that you observe the same thing with things coming from literature and different experiments trying to do the same on stage in a different way. Um, I, but I would be interested in when do these um, books on, on magical tricks, um, when are they published? So when do you have the first books and also who, who buys them and who reads them and how how popular were they? Yeah, it, I, I quite late and not very extensively came upon this. There is a German PhD thesis by Katharina Rhein. It's called uh, Techniques of Fake, so Techniken der Täuschung, eine Kultur- und Mediengeschichte der Bühnenzauberkunst im späten 19. Jahrhundert, where she also mentions earlier research. So that might be interesting for you and for the listeners who read German. But if you take the, the terms magic and illusion, um, you will find plenty in English Uh, for example, Philip, it's called, he's called Philip Butterworth, who looks at magic and illusions in early English theater and identifies similar stage illusions for the early modern period and even um, medieval uh, passion plays. Um, so uh, to come at the actual sources, I'm not sure how well researched they already are. Apart from this uh, monograph by Katharina Rhein, there were several internationally peering um, artists like the, the later famous magicians who also had pseudonyms. So there are some books and they are also available in, in uh, digital scans. I looked at uh, two interesting uh, sources. One is a description of a magic performance by somebody uh, called Enslin, sometimes Enslin, who apparently performed in Berlin around 1780 and then what is also very interesting is uh, later on somebody uh, by the name of Robertson there are some books and there is a whole history of this uh, revealing the magic effect so apparently there are publications which explain the magic illusions the tricks being performed and then um, kind of answers to those publications where the actual uh, performer rectifies some mistakes, etc., etc. So one should uh, look at the whole publication history and and get that together. I'm not an expert on magic. I was just thinking of these uh, sources because I'm sure there is an interdependence with your. Um, studies and uh, your area of research, the Gothic um, plays, because it's very apparent that they use the same effects, the same, they aim for the same um, 
affects and suspense, thrill, shock, wonder, etc. Mm. Can I just ask a question? Because from, from what you were talking about, which is fascinating, it occurred to me that there are two kinds of, maybe there are more, but it, it strikes me that there are two kinds of sounds involved here. Some are very mundane sounds, like steps on a, on a staircase. That's not a per se a scary sound. So that needs some kind of framing. Um, and, and I wonder to what degree there is a sort of narrative or even visual framing that makes that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, if you if you hear steps and you see someone's horrified face, then those steps become threatening. And if you don't, if you see someone expectancy, oh, my lover is coming up the stairs, you know, then that's a different sound or uh, instantly. But of course, you can also, if you give the sound, the steps a lot of echo or a lot of or 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 make them very deep or very slow or very you know impactful then they might become threatening by themselves and the other thing is what you were talking about that you both in your research there is a strong element of the supernatural the the the, the deceptive the the you know magic the um, elusive etc cetera, etc cetera. and that of course is a is a is a tricky thing but it's also it, it sounds lend themselves in their nature of being uh you know fleeting and not necessarily visible and not necessarily rationalizable etc they seem to lend themselves and i wonder i mean the one is the a mimetic sound technique i'm doing some steps off stage that are meant to sound threatening and the other is i have to use my imagination what could a ghost sound like for example because you know we don't have a, a sort of template for that is that a, a relationship that that comes up, or is that, or do they all fall in, into the same spectrum, and they just happen to be different kinds of sounds that, but, but they all get the same kind of treatment? Well, what you said about the the sounds, this is definitely true. So I noticed that, especially in scenes where um, sounds are heard that are not per se something uncanny, uh, the characters on stage refer to them. So it's often that the character on stage is saying something like, Hark, do you hear that dreadful sound? So everyone notices, okay, the character um, apparently is frightened by that sound. So this sound has to be scary. And because of the, the supernatural thing, it also depends on the general, um, role that music is playing in, in, in plays. So for example, when we have a play that contains mainly, uh, diegetic music, a music without a source that can be seen or, or can be imagined already can show that something supernatural is coming into into the play whereas when we have a comic opera where people are singing all the time without any motivation or need uh, the music itself can't signal something supernatural so it either has to be no music at all or sounds or it has to be a music that differs significantly from the music in the rest of the play so for example if it's Really, um, like, like, uh, Julia said before, an instrument that is not used in the rest of the play, for example, a glass harmonica, or, um, we have, um, something like uh, discordant music already. So in, in horror films, we know that atonal or, or dissonant music is used, but already around 1800, we have these like discordant crashes of, of, of loud music. So, also, they noticed that this so these sounds that were not um, similar to what is sounding in the rest of the play could be used to signal that something odd or strange is going on. Yeah, I would totally agree with you, Anna. It's it's all about the framing, the the narrative, which um, 
announces somebody threatening might be coming. We don't know if this is uh, a living or a dead <laughs> appearance, uh, whatever. So uh, it, it's uh, it still works the same way in in horror films today. I think, and um, it already worked in that way in Shakespeare plays. There is some re research in um, in those uh, tropes, how to how to achieve those ghost effects, etc. I would imagine that every period, um, especially in the musical realms, forms their own instantations, uh, so specific sound and musical forms, uh, which which um, can be recognized, which are learned by the public and then recognized and then used because it's, as you say, it's a genre. So it's a genre specific music. Um, in that sense, it's uh, a very specific um specifically used for certain effects um, to achieve certain uh, emotions in the listeners and the audience. I wanted to go into the natural sciences. So both of you have mentioned the effects appearing, and I wanted to point out that in the history of uh, natural sciences, there was always a link to magic so it it was difficult for the audience to understand the difference between magic and uh, natural science fact <laughs> what we call it today it's it's even today it's not so easy right if new things are found out which go beyond our human uh, sensual capacity. So we cannot perceive radio waves. How does it work? It was magic for Cage. He still was enchanted with this idea that you could, could just pick up sounds from the air, let's say. Yeah. So uh, there is this artist in all periods who are always fascinated by this. And if we look at the history of natural sciences, they were always staged. The findings were always performed. Uh, think of Tesla. And uh, there's a whole film history. Uh, looking and we're not talking about the car here. We're talking about Nikola Tesla. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Just to... But uh, the car industry is very good in staging. Oh, yes. <laughs> findings as well. So, so it's, a, it's a history of staging natural sciences as well. And they used all these effects. For example, if we look and at the natural sciences history, uh, natural sciences, sorry, no history, theater, Urania in Berlin, which uh, started around 1900 to um, perform uh, shows on natural history. It's like shows of the natural world on TV today. Yeah. About, um, I don't know, the rainforest or, or astronomy or whatever. And they use sound effects for that. They used music. And I think they use the same sound effects and the same type of music of course of their period that is the harmonium in around 1900 and Anna you will have other instruments around 1800 of course but they were very similar I assume 
it's difficult to find out how they sounded exactly because usually they are not notated. It's interesting how this is such a such a topos, this whole uh, let's call it the inspiration of awe, you know, that people are awestruck in, in, in one way or another. It could go into horror, it could go into fascination. I mean, if you go to a to a planetarium, do they call them planetarium in England? I'm not sure. Um, you know, and you see a show about the constellation of stars. Of course, there's tons of music, there's speakers all around. It's sound is such a such a vehicle for inspiring for for signaling to the audience something extraordinary is happening here. It could be extraordinary scary, it could be supernatural, or it could be just the wonder of nature, as you've said. And I I I love that connection you made, Julia, between um, you know, the, the natural sciences and and the, the wonders of nature, which are, all can be explained and which are sort of scientifically researched and proven and magic. And it's it's not I mean, if you if you go on YouTube and you see how many kids pop a Mentos into a Coke bottle to see to see it flowing over this very simple and very messy trick that people do. It's just that awe of Oh my God, you know, I'm I'm doing something and there's an effect that I can't quite explain. And even if you have it explained, then it doesn't stop people from being fascinated by by it. Um, but but the, the the fact that sound plays such a prominent role in framing and promoting that, and also kind of telling you how to feel about it, you know, um, which is really interesting. What I wondered is, it you mentioned another thing, Julia, uh, or actually both of you, which is sort of learned behavior in the sense of there are certain tropes. I mean, in film, of course, if there's a high high string sound it's foreboding there's something happening we know something's going to be we can we can tinge every mundane and very sort of uh harmless scene with a sense of threat with with a sense of dread etc etc very easily because people have learned that this kind of drone or this kind of high-pitched sort of uh tone w will tell you that but you also mentioned anna the, the the sheer physical effect you know that beyond the fact that semiotically you know cognitively i know i've learned to behave i've learned to read the stage or, or film semiotics that tell me this is that kind of a genre and if that sound appears then we can expect something to happen but there's also a somatic feeling and people have played with that with subwoofers etc with sort of very low sounds or very high sounds to affect you physically to make you nauseous to 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 shell shock you almost or or simply volume you know to really sort of blast you into into your seat etc cetera, etc cetera. and you mentioned this show where people fell sick or fainted or or couldn't take it etc have you both come across sounds that are meant to almost work physically subliminally somatically at people yeah does that play a role or is that something that comes later with electronic sound technology which really can do that uh, perhaps more easily. Yes. Um, so the uh, already mentioned, now I have the first name, Etienne Gaspar Robertson explains in his book, which he wrote later in 1831, uh, the functions of those sounds, some of those effects and sounds. And he has very direct ideas. So the glass harmonica reizt die Nerven, so goes to the nerve part. Um, the rain sound has a, a sleepy effect <laughs> and the thunder can mask um, the noises of the uh, stage technology. <laughs> so th there is a um, very concrete idea about the functions of those sounds uh, that apparently he used, which I found uh, quite interesting. So there are explanations uh, in many 
of those handbooks uh, in um, theater or stage technology of what was supposedly achieved by those sounds in the audience. I also have this hypothesis that there are kind of horror sound cues, I would call them now just for like as a work term <laughs> and these horror sound cues could be something in a theatrical communication that tells the audience now there's the point to fear for the protagonist of the play because something horrible is about to happen similar to nowadays when we watch a movie and a person is going into the forest it totally depends on what the forest sounds like and what music is played during his uh, walk through the forest, if we perceive the situation as totally relaxing or even a romantic night in the dark forest, or on the other hand, as something totally horrible and we just wait for the jump scare. And on stage, it, I think there is a development towards that because horror um, motives proliferated on the stages and therefore horror sound cues needed to be established so that the audience needed to know when something was about to happen. And for example, when we look at melodrama, there's these treatises from these three melodramatists from the 1820s, I think. And they actually make fun of that thing with, uh, okay, when this introduction is coming, we all know the villain is on stage and we're frightened. So it's clear that there is a certain standardization of, of, of horror sound cues. On the other hand, I'm not sure if these sounds work on a physical level like nowadays. So I'm not sure if the sounds are really that creepy directly or if it's just more more a code. Like also the glass harmonica, I think it's creepy because we don't know the sound and it's not really familiar. Whereas a rain sound is possibly familiar to everyone and might have a, a soothing effect and not this frightening one. So I'm, I'm not sure how directly physical the influence is. You talk a lot about intended effects. You, you've mentioned it as functions, you know, where, where someone uh, deliberately sort of codes and says that this is meant to do that, this is meant to do that. As we all know, that can go terribly wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> playing with the intentions of an uh, or or su suggesting that you know how an audience will react. And and the the fact, Anna, you you've mentioned that the, 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 uh, almost at the same time there's a start of parodies of that because it kind of almost parodies the 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 idea that oh we know we all know how it works. Did, did you come across examples where the audience laughs because it becomes unintentionally funny because it's overdone, it's overripe, you know, people just don't know quite how to pitch it. Um, th there's a famous quote, this is obviously a different different context, but there's a famous quote by Goethe, who apparently in one of the productions, which was meant to be very moving and very sort of dramatic, etc. And people laughed a lot because it was just over the top. And he sat in his box and said, one doesn't laugh, you know, and just screamed at the audience for, for having the wrong reaction, essentially. But of course, it's none of their fault. You know, if it's if, if it's ridiculous, then they will laugh and they, they can be, you know, quite, uh, quite cruel in, in sort of not letting an, uh, a playwright or an actor or getting away with overdoing it or something. Are there examples of, of sound failing to achieve an effect, but but on the contrary, 
leaving people cold or even finding finding that ridiculous? Where there are a lot of of examples where the intended reaction was not the reaction that <laughs> probably was intended, <laughs> and um, I. It's it's really not that easy to separate sounds and music from what's happening on stage because normally it's like an overall multimedial event. Uh, but there are certainly a lot of things that did not go well. And for example, I, I looked into one of the later plays of Matthew Lewis, who we will probably talk about later, and he um, tried to adapt a finale that he saw in, in Paris in the revolutionary years from a very popular anti-clerical drama called Le Victime Cloitre, and in the end we have two um, incarcerated uh, people, two lovers who are who don't see each other but are holding monologues and are separated by a wall. And he um, tried to adapt that for the London stage and it totally failed because people were like, okay, this looks like two lions in a cage and it is really nothing to to sympathize with or to, to suffer with. And they were laughing and were bored because they couldn't understand that the sound was not good at the, in the theater, in the scene. And this was very common. We also have reports about, I'm, I'm not sure anymore which play it was. I think it was Aurelion and Miranda, but I'm not sure. And there is a woman who is incarcerated and with her baby. And the actor was apparently so annoyed by the whole performance not going the way she wanted that in the end she ran out of the door and clutched the hat of the, the wooden baby against the door. And this was something that we can find in memoirs. 20 or 30 years later, because people really remembered that. <laughs> and so sometimes the, the performances go a whole other way when they are performed. But I think this is the interesting thing about that. And this is the thing that is also interesting about these experiments on stage, because um, when we look in the memoirs of Michael Kelly, who was one of the main uh, musicians writing music to to gothic plays, he often, and he was also singing and and and. and uh, working on, on, on stage and everything. And he often reports things like, we thought of an effect, but then the actress stumbled and I caught her and the audience applauded. So this was integrated into all of the following performances. So, it, it's, so we really have to concentrate on the theatrical and the performative aspect of, of the whole place. It's almost like the stage is, becomes a a room for experimentation on yeah. on audience reactions and and simply by trial and error you know you 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 make a plan and then it fails and you make another plan because you realize or also i i imagine sometimes it's all about synchronization as well if you've got a big thunderclap and it comes too early or too late you know already the effect is is terribly <laughs> gone wrong yeah yeah, and, uh, and the audience laughs and everyone is relieved, but we don't have a horror effect anymore. <laughs> yeah, but I think this is really the fascinating thing about that, because we, we can observe that that uh, people are experimenting with all these horror effects. And it's more like, okay, let's try this and then see how it works. And if the audience likes it, when people were like in, in the Castle Spectre, a ghost appears to, to a music that was not really used, that type of music was not really used in scenes like that and the audience was totally in favor of that scene and it was published as a favorite moment of of the whole play so uh of course there are different approaches to try to to create this effect again Julia, you were talking about sound effects and and people creating sound effects in, in for magic shows do you know that 
those are the same people as in the theater? Is there a personal overlap, sort of the 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 personnel? Is it the same kind of people who are who are the sound guys or sound girls, but probably sound guys at that time, who do that uh, no matter what? Or is it is it just separate developments and people who create theater plays also go and see magic shows and sort of steal some of the ideas and vice versa? Or not as far as I know, but I have been looking into the um, machines, devices, instruments. What I know is that the institutions were partly the same. So um, those uh, magicians, they did perform in a Schauspielhaus that is a theater building. But that is great evidence because that would, would suggest that it's the same machines and it's probably also similar people operating them or, or knowing about because, you know, it's, it's a craft. I mean, it's not only a craft to build those machines, but also to operate them. And it would it would almost sound like that could be a similar sort of crew to uh, to to work on those sounds. Yeah, what was very interesting for me, and um, this is why I introduced the topic um, in this talk with Anna uh, on her subject, is that sometimes it's mentioned that uh, I don't explain about this effect because it's the same as in the theater. Everybody knows it. But this effect is not the one that is used in the theater. I invented this. Or that actually, yes, the the first description of uh, a crank-operated uh, wind machine was as, as evidence in uh, such a book and not in a theater technology book, so mm, handbook. I would suppose that uh, in this field, and I, I think Anna will find out more in the course of her research, that there is uh, a connection between um, these two uh, types of performances and um, that they learn from each other. And maybe maybe also in in the personnel, in, in the people. Can I ask you a bit about the... The interplay of music and sound, because we've talked about sound effects and sound sort of creation. Um, but you've also both hinted at how music comes into it, how certain instruments come into it and, and certain musical tropes and how sometimes they become almost inseparable. I mean, if you've got sort of a chromatic scale on a glass harmonia or something, it's a musical line, but it's also almost a sound effect, you know, to, to, to a degree. Um, I don't know, Anna, you, you brought a few or you had a few examples in mind where, where it seems to me you are interested particularly also in how those two elements interact or enhance each other or contradict each other or, or whatever it might be. Do you want to talk a bit about that relationship? Because I think it's a, it's a really interesting topic that follows us through this podcast and through the whole project where, where's, is there a line? Is there a clear, um, duality between the two or is it actually something that gets you know where the where the the borders between sound and music gets get blurred on on a perspective level but also perhaps on a personal level sometimes yeah yeah then perhaps i could talk about the captive because i already spoiled a bit earlier. um because this was this melodrama that was performed in 1803 and it was only performed once because of the extreme reactions in the audience because people were screaming and some were crying or even fainting and we have reports that Covent Garden did never present such a, I quote here, picture of agitation and dismay. And I recently wrote a paper about this play and trying to like find out what really caused these extreme reactions. 
And uh, I, I also tried to explore the role that music played in, in, in this extreme effect and, and the sounds. So when we look at the role of sounds, we have to keep in mind that they already play a crucial role in the novel, as I already mentioned. So when we look at the novels of Rand Radcliffe, we have these like horror soundscapes. I, I already described them. And so on the stage, the captive experimented with something that was very similar. So the play revolves around a woman and it's a monodrama, so it's only one monologue, more or less. And this woman was imprisoned in a madhouse by her tyrant husband. So it's a typical villain and damsel in distress story. And she is now trying to not get mad throughout the play. And this is basically the plot. However, this proves to be very difficult <laughs> due to the very scary sounds around her. So uh, we hear the noise of bars falling, loud shrieks or the rattling of chains. And she is always reacting to these sounds and trying to not get mad and eventually gets that before her fam family rescues her because it's a melodrama and needs a happy end. Um, I have not yet found a good term for that. And perhaps you both could help me with that a little bit <laughs> because I was trying like to, it, it, it's like an imitation of a, of a prison soundscape, but on stage. So it could be perhaps considered a very early form of, of, of sound design, but it's also used to um, describe this room on a sounding basis. So I'm, I'm not sure how to, how to call it. I'm just calling it now prison soundscape and, but I know it's a terrible term. And these sounds are combined on the stage with melodramatic music that is depicting the feelings of the protagonist. And the thing about melodramatic music at the turn of the 18th century is that it was a music that is already at part very similar to what we now today know from film music. So it was unobtrusive. It was a music that was not listened to, but heard and also yeah, trying to to heighten the emotion of the play. So that means we have basically two like layers of, of of sound in the play. The one, the melodramatic music that is extra diegetic and is is only meant for the audience to evoke sympathy for the suffering heroine on stage. And on the other hand, we have this prison soundscape that is diegetic, so it is heard by the character on stage and also by the audience. Yeah, I think this particular combination was something that was not yet known to the audience. And I think it caused an immersion that made people uncomfortable. So we now know this combination. So we know this this typical thing, like we, we hear diegetic sounds and at the same time we hear an extra diegetic music who um, helps us to know how to interpret these sounds. But I think that this was something new for the theater audience of that time. And this could perhaps have caused this extreme reaction. Is it true that in this melodrama, the the kind of moment that was formerly, I'm thinking of Bender, etc., mm -hmm. uh, musically expressed, the lion's roar is very famous in the discourse on tone painting, um, is now taken over by sound effects? I didn't want you to uh, yeah, come to the whole topic of melodrama because it's really, I, I think... Two researchers have called it a categorical nightmare, and it is really true, <laughs> because we have the Bender melodrama, which is also called the German melodrama of the 1770s, and then in the 70, in the late 1790s, around 1800, uh, the popular melodrama in emerging in Paris and also a little bit in in London, and in this 
melo in this popular melodrama we have music normally more in in an underscoring way like a predecessor film music thing and the captive is really interesting because it's actually a combination of both melodrama types so we have this monodramatic form like in benda melodramas and we also have this musical intersections like in Benda melodramas, but at the same time, we have this underscoring effects like in popular melodrama. We have the happy end like in popular melodrama. We have the bad villain and, and the uh, victim like in popular melodrama. And moreover, we have this uh, new role of sounds. And this soundscape is, is something that I I could not find in, in German melodrama. So this is something that I think is is perhaps I just haven't found it yet, <laughs> but I think it isn't emerging early. I think it's something that comes up in the 1790s. I wondered about your thesis about the immersiveness of this particular play. And I, I mean, I completely get what you're saying, that this combination of music heightening the emotions of the audience, plus a very evocative soundscape, uh, plus a very sort of troubling theme, you know, I think... The prospect of going mad is something that would be fear-inducing to most of us. I think it's a, it's a, it's a particularly strong subject. The one thing I, I I would add as a as a hypothesis maybe is that when we hear like a sound effect like the wind or or uh, or a thunderstorm or something, we kind of know it's a natural phenomenon. We've experienced it. We know what it is. We we you know we, we're sort of yes, it's sort of a a certain atmosphere because we know it's a bit scary and and and, and so forth. But it's 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 something we we know what it is. In this case, it seems like we try to, with the heroine in this story, we try to imagine who is screaming there. What are these chains rattling? What is that? Who are those steps? You know what? So essentially, we're saying there's a soundscape, and yes, we we know these are all sounds from 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 within a prison cell, but we we don't quite know how mad are all these people how many are there what are they capable of you know what so i'm saying there is a there's a certain factor of the unknown there and and of the unexperienced i think for the audience not not many of them will will have been to a madhouse and come back to see a theater show if you see what i mean and i wonder if that's another factor that plays into that 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 it plays with the with the imaginary, which we all, you know, since Hitchcock, we all know that it's it's what we can imagine is much stronger than what we can see or what we know to be horrible or something. As our mind is playing those tracks in us, and I, I find that quite fascinating. That it seems to, to evoke, you know, with with those acousmatic sounds, it seems to evoke. We we want to know what it is, and we imagine things that are probably worse than what there is or or isn't, and we can't quite. And it's not revealed either. It's not that all of a sudden we we can see all those. The, the the sources of those sounds absolutely and it's also because as you you mentioned there is something like uh, things that are scary in a good way because we still feel comfortable and safe <laughs> while watching and uh, i think when we lose this comfortableness in in the moment and in this the feeling of safety that the things we see don't affect us in this moment it really gets scary and this is probably the thing so when we have so much sympathy for the woman on stage and we hear at the same time everything she hears and we are um, brought into asking ourselves like, oh, what what is the sound in the same moment when she is um, reacting to, to a sound? I think this is something that was definitely new because I, I couldn't find any earlier play that, that uses sounds really in that way 
at the same time with these other immersive uh, factors. Can I pick up on one other term which you used, which I find interesting, and it actually also resonates, I think, with the the whole magic show um, aspect of of Yulia's research, which is the term immersive. Because, you know, in recent times, immersive theatre has been a big topic. Lots of books have been written about it. It's been put forward. It's been critiqued. It's become a genre, actually. You know, people sell their shows as this is going to be an immersive theatre show as opposed to what? As opposed to (laughs) non-immersive theatre, I guess, or Brechtian, I, I suppose. And very often, immersive is associated with there is a certain agency of the actor of, of the audience. So there's a certain we're involved. We maybe we we wander around in a building. I'm thinking of Punch Drunk, for example, the the company who staged their their plays in in, in big empty buildings, and you can wander from room to room, and you're left to, to your own to your own devices. So it's immersive in a literal sense that I could go. I'm in the stage almost. I'm I'm part of it. Um, and the other way is that I'm enveloped and enveloped means often by sound you know so that the, the 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 fact that sound is 360 rather than a stage that we look at sort of frontally is something now both of those things are not true for for the captive it seems you know we're looking at a at a stage i don't think they had surround sound at the time i'm not sure whether they used effects from all sides of the audience you know from the auditorium and and there's no agency of the audience to intervene to be part of it to be to you know we we, we could imagine a staging where we're we're in that prison cell with the protagonist or something that that seems to all not be the case and yet it is immersive to a degree that uh you know has people so troubled that they they, they could not repeat the show which i find really yeah. fascinating and the same goes in some ways for the magic shows you know you immersion means that you're concentrated concentrating on the magic tricks that you're well part of you will will always ask how is this done how how does that work but if if all you do is wonder how it works, you're not giving yourself over to the magic show and it won't have an effect on you. It won't, it, it, it'll be, it won't have an effect. You, you need to be immersed in what the, the, the person on stage does, even just to be distracted from other things which are going on, which is usually the, the core of any magic show is distraction. You know, you need to be, and, and, and sound plays a, a role in that. But I wonder how those early historical examples of certainly an effect of immersion call into question the sort of this this later notion of immersion as being something where a i have an an agency and 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 two i'm i'm enveloped by you know we think of computer games where you've got headphones on and you can create 360 sound etc etc i wonder if you had thoughts on that i think we have to keep in mind that um also things can be immersive that are new so when we i i'm not sure if it was one of the first films with these trains coming towards the audience and people yeah. thinking, yeah. And this is also something that would probably not fall into these two categories and uh, still be something that was apparently immersive because people were really fearing for their lives. And so I think it's also when we uh, research things that are historical, we also have to keep in mind what was known to the audience, what was the thing that was usually done, and uh, how did the audience apparently react to something new. So sometimes, of course, experiments were probably made and the audience was totally bored or they were not surprised at all. But when something was really new and people were like uh, having their eyes on the stage and like, okay, what is happening now? Then this was apparently a f- an effect that caused something new. And I'm perhaps I, I will not use the term Im- immersion. I, I used it now because I thought, okay, then probably everyone has a has an idea of of which effect it could have had. 
I mean, immersion is also used for reading stories sometimes, so um, it's it's quite that adaptable. But I, I also think it makes more sense in in um, uh, contemporary VR environments somehow where it was um, coined for. But you're right. I mean, the, 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 in English, the term "I was immersed in a book," you know, is a very common phrase, and it it, it means exactly that. You know, I, I was in that world. I was not things that went on around me. I did not notice. So I, so I directed my attention in a particular way, and it's not just an environment that causes me to inv- it, to be immersed, but it's also a, a conscious, mm, or maybe not even conscious, but it's sort of a, a how I direct my attention that that may that I can decide to immerse myself. So that's a whole different angle, not be immersed in, but immerse myself. So it's an active, an active thing as well as a passive. But I wanted to, to ask sort of with a more academic hat on the question, the, the, the infamous question of methodology, because I think both your, your projects are, are very fascinating and, and challenging in terms of, you've talked a little bit about what, what resources you find, what sort of the, what is your, what your material is, but it's, um, You've mentioned Anna that the the melodrama is a is a nightmare to to research in in, in terms of its categories, etc. What are the methodological challenges that you face in in your particular research? What are the main obstacles that you find, or the main uh, opportunities as well to develop uh, ways in encountering them? On a methodological side, I'm I'm working with historical sources. So at first, I will collect as much as I can, and then I will try to interpret them and contextualize them. But then, when I try to to make an interpretation of when what I'm what I have found, I think that two things are very vital and and important. And the first one is, if I have understood your theories right, David, it's uh, what you describe as theater music as a cultural practice. So um, when you when you look at London theaters around 1800, we usually don't have a composer who is writing theater music as a work for for a play but usually we have teams of playwrights of different composers who are as well new composing as well as compiling music that is often pre-existing and often from from very other contexts for a specific performance and that we have the castle specter where where there where Chacon was compiled in in a um in a ghost scene and it became the favorite moment and was printed again, although it was already printed as a novel chacun. So <laughs> there we see that also non-theater music could become very popular theater music. And therefore we need to understand that um, um, we need to understand that this is a cultural practice because it was a music that was really meant for a specific performance and that we have to keep in mind. So and linked to that is the second aspect that is really in, important when when approaching these performances and that is that we need to view them as performative. We can't look at the theater texts as texts to be read and we can't look at the music as music to just be heard without seeing anything and so i think it's really important that when we research theater music we can't leave the theater out of the music so we have to keep in mind what is happening on the stage what were the effects what did the theater building look like and how did it sound because for example when we look in the 1790s um, at london the theater buildings were getting bigger and bigger and so they had the opportunity to have 
a lot of more people in there. But the problem was that it was not a very good sound. So sometimes the audience could not understand the text very well. So we have a tendency towards a more visual theater in these years. And the effect of that is that it is often described as a decline because texts were getting less important and music that was innovative in itself was also getting a little bit less important. But the thing is, it had it, it was not a decline in a quality, but it was more like a shift in a more visual direction. And we can't see that if we just look at the texts that were written or at the, the scores that were printed. Michael Piseni has written this really compelling study on melodrama in the 19th century. And he, um, I'm, I'm not remembering the exact quote, but he said something like, um, when we just look at the text, it's like we imagine a building just from an architect's blueprint. And I think the problem is that most, that a lot of researchers at least um, mistake the blueprint as the building. And I think we have to combine all sources we can find and all aspects we can find. Also these like magic tricks that were going on for example, in London, in the city. And of course, theater makers saw these effects and were trying to bring them on stage in their place to attract more and more people for their audience. And so we have to look at all of these sources to try to imagine what a building could have looked like when we, <laughs> if I may pick up on that metaphor, um, when we combine all these sources and yeah, try to approach the performance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of, Sorry to interject, but it kind of reminds me of contemporary musicals. I mean, that's that's kind of what musicals do. You know, they they have a, a particular effect that people talk about. Oh, have you seen the one with the helicopter yet? You know, I mean, that's that's why people go, amongst other things. And yes, maybe in some musicals, words are not the most important thing. And, you know, and they're playing for larger and larger halls, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some echoes, I think, in contemporary theater entertainment let's put it that way to to uh to hark back to to early developments you're describing there today you uh, you've you've talked about the difficulties of, of finding good material for for what you're interested in how do you is it is it very textual research if you look at those books or how much can you find out about the the actual magic performances how does that relate to each other what you find in the handbooks and what you find in sources or reactions or receptions etc uh, as I said, David, I'm not researching magic. Okay. <laughs> I just brought it up because um, no, yeah. it it it's so uh, wonderful to uh, to to show the um, uh, interconnection that Anna explained about uh, now. So um, if if we look at sound design and theater, we have exactly that problem. So there is so much which is not clear. So it's uh, obviously a mixed methodology and it's um, a, a big part is looking for sources and trying to build a picture <laughs> um, to use this metaphor that Anna used. So yeah, I totally agree. We should all get together and try to, to find out more because it it is an important part, although uh, not the most important part, because the most important part is how it all works together, as Anna said. And that's always where the where the reports from people who've seen shows, you know, come come in. I, I I suppose letters or travel diaries or things like that. I suppose where people describe how they have they've seen a show, and that gives you a sense, perhaps, of 
you know, what they paid attention to and what they didn't pay attention to, what do they mention, what do don't they mention, or how do they describe certain effects that then you can reconstruct how they were possibly built and what contributed to them. Yeah. Uh, well, that's painstaking work, but, uh, but it's really important. And it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm really glad that it's happening because, uh, you know, as we all know, a lot of historical theater research used to be, I think this has really shifted in the last few years, but used to be very textual and it was very much about, you know, this play and that play and another play. Um, and <clears throat> I, I like that metaphor, Anna, that you use that we, those are blueprints. Those are sort of, um, building blocks those are sort of starting points but they're not the object of study per se i mean yes you can study them as a dramatic construction but th that's not quite what they were intended for they were intended to be performed and we need to look at if we want to understand about the artifact um in in performance in in situ in the theater in the surroundings of as lights and costumes and visuals and sounds and then we need to look at the try to sort of reconstruct the whole picture uh, by whatever means we have which is which is tricky great well thank you so much uh, for the insight you've both given us into into your work and into uh the the materials and the problems and the questions and the fascinations um of which there are many uh of, of a more historical period or periods actually um and and all the resonances uh that we find today are and um i'm sure we'll we'll talk again at, at least in three years Anna, and we'll find out uh all you've all you've compiled um and also julia we're so looking forward to you uh finishing your work on theater sounds and sound effects and noises off and and uh, hope to read about it soon no pressure but i'm <laughs> just saying we're all uh, we're all excited about that Thanks so much. Thank right. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, David, for great questions and Anna for wonderful examples.